Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I'm Lisa Heineman, co-host of New Books and Gender and Sexuality Studies, part of the New Books Network. Welcome to today's podcast. My guess is that many listeners to our show know people in what we might call non-traditional families, but that only a small number of those non-traditional families are headed by gay men. Not men who had children in straight relationships and then came out. I mean men who, as single gay men or as part of a same-sex couple, decided they wanted to be parents and did whatever it took to make it happen. Anthropologist Ellen Lewin calls such men intentional gay fathers, and they're the subject of her award-winning book, Gay Fatherhood, Narratives of Family and Citizenship in America, which appeared with the University of Chicago Press in 2009. They're a small group, and they're charting new territory, legally, socially, culturally, and even emotionally. And they tend to raise the ire of people on both sides of the culture wars, Cultural conservatives often consider them unfit parents, a danger to the institution of the family, and even to the children under their care. And then there are the people whom Lewin identifies as queer fundamentalists, who consider intentional gay fathers to be sellouts, superficially gay people who are attempting to assimilate to the very traditional values they should be challenging. Lewin allows these men to speak for themselves, and so we learn about their struggles to become parents about the ways they juggle the seemingly contradictories of gay man and father, and about their larger communities. It's a fascinating story. Ellen Lewin is professor of anthropology and of gender, women's, and sexuality studies at the University of Iowa, and I'm very happy to have her joining us today. Hi, Ellen. Welcome to our podcast. I've got today on our show Ellen Lewin, the author of Gay Fatherhood, Narratives of Family and Citizenship in America. And Ellen, we're very happy to have you here. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here. Uh, let's, let's start out by um, just asking you to, to tell a little bit about your own background, um, how, you, how you came to the field of anthropology, how you came to, to focus on gay and lesbian studies. Okay. <clears throat> Well, I, I, I've been an anthropologist for a long time, um, and uh, I guess, um, I don't know, it's, and I kind of fell in love with anthropology when I was in college because it was about real people and what they, and the complexity of what they believed, I, is a simple way to put it. And um, uh, I started... Um, working in uh, doing work on gender back in the uh, late 60s into the early 70s when this was very new in academia in general and extremely new in anthropology and um, uh, became really fascinated with uh, the kinds of positions people can be in that are kind of unnamed and invisible or the ways in which things, social roles that we think we know the meaning of can mean very, very different things in the lives of actual people. Uh, so my dissertation research had to do with um, uh, immigrant women 
who were mothers who lived in San Francisco. These were immigrants from Latin America. But I was really fascinated with the idea that motherhood was a much more motivated, um, agentive condition than we were then uh, giving it credit for being. Um, so I was looking at how women thought about motherhood, even though they were not really aware very often that they did think about it, um, and, and how it represented a strategy for dealing with economic uh, marginality. Um, after I finished my dissertation, um, I was working um, in a series of research positions and postdocs, and um, I... I came to know um, several lesbian mothers through personal networks, and I decided um, to write a grant to study uh, lesbian mothers. And um, at that time, nobody thought there was such a thing as a lesbian mother, and a lot of people said to me, oh, you know, that must be, you must be studying like two people in the whole, you know, and they would explain the facts of life to me and so on and so on. (laughs) Don't you know where babies come from? And I said, yeah, I've heard about that. But... um, You know, I ended up um, actually getting funding. This was still during the Carter administration from the National Institutes of Mental Health, and I did a very large study of various kinds of lesbian mothers. Um, And uh, so I sort of got launched in the area of what we might generally call lesbian and gay kinship. Um, And it's an area that relatively few people have been interested in, partly because, you know, the, the... the cultural stereotype is, you know, again, that lesbians don't have children, gay people don't have families, that um, that all of those domains do not apply to people who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender. But back in the old days, we just said lesbian and gay. Um, so, um, you know, I... I started working in this area when it was um, it was really pretty invisible. And, of course, the women I was working with were mothers despite their invisibility in, in a number of um, cultural areas in which they operated. And, um, you know, I found that motherhood for these women involved crossing a lot of these boundaries and that, for example, the people who they felt were the, uh, their closest and most reliable friends were, or contacts um, in, in their networks were either their family or other women who were single moms or were mothers in general rather than necessarily other lesbians. So in other words, um, motherhood kind of trumped other identities um, in this situation. Um, So um, I subsequently, I I did a project on same-sex commitment ceremonies back before um, anybody could get married. And that was, um, you know, work I did on a similar basis that, um, nobody thinks lesbian and gay people can be married um, because supposedly they're just promiscuous and they don't want to get married. And I was looking at the ways in which people crafted meanings in situations where um, they were, you know, culturally invisible. Um, and then after I did that book, um, uh, I had arrived at the University of Iowa a couple, a year or two before, and. Um, one night I was reading um, a book by um, a fellow named Jesse Green. It was a memoir called The Velveteen Father. And I'd seen a review of it, and I picked it up and started reading it. And it was one of those moments where I stayed up all night reading this book. And in the morning I thought, okay, this is what I'm doing next. 
And what he talks about in this book, and it's a very beautiful, beautifully written book, it's, it's very compelling, um, is he talked about this intense desire he had to become a father and how he felt that if he couldn't become a father and that he was a gay man, that his life would be meaningless. He would just be a zero. He would have no consequence. And, of course, in our society, we generally think that women are the people who want to be parents and that men kind of go with the program, but that women are the ones who are really motivated and for whom parenthood is very important. And primary parenthood for men is, again, one of these um, understudied and, and relatively invisible situations. So, you know, I started um, to get in contact with some people I knew from previous research um, who I knew were people who wanted to have kids. This was from my research on commitment ceremonies. And then, um, so I did some interviews out in California, which is where I'd lived before. And then since I was, you know, here in Iowa City, I realized that running back and forth to the West Coast wasn't very practical. So I decided to explore doing this work in Chicago, and that's where I did the majority of it on a leave I had when I was able to um, live in Chicago for a year and um, get to know, um, in the end, almost 100 um, gay fathers who lived in the suburbs, in the city, and some were in couples, some were... um, in other, you know, some were single, you know, who either were fathers or in a few cases were in the process of planning to become fathers. Yeah, tell us a little bit about, about the sample. It's, it's a, um, uh, you know, largely a sort of an urban and suburban group of men. Um, tell, tell us how you, how you located them and, and who they are. Who are these people? Well, they're, they're, they're a pretty wide variety. There are working class people and, and upper middle class and some wealthy individuals. Um, the problem in a lot of this research is that usually um, research, especially on gay men, tends to focus on affluent white men. And so I tried to avoid that as, as much as I could, could, having that be my total sample. Um, I have some African-American couples um, in the sample, some um, couples who were mixed ethnicity, you know, for instance, a white, you know, a white man and a Latino um, you know, various kinds of combinations. But I tried to find as many people, um, people who were not affluent, who were uh, people with working class jobs. Um, Sometimes people's incomes went down precipitously when they became parents because one partner decided to stay home and be a full-time parent, and that would have an impact. Um, And I used a, I guess we call it a snowball sample. I mean, I basically went from person to person and used people to find other people. Um, I also went to meetings of organizations. There was um, an organization for gay dads in Chicago that had potlucks and other events, and I went to a bunch of those. And I also went to churches. Churches and synagogues are really good places to find parents um, because a lot of people, when they have children, they decide that they should be involved in some religious institution. Um, that their kids should go to Sunday school or whatever. So going to those institutions allowed me to meet people or to talk to pastors and get referred to people or have um, items in church newsletters so that people could respond to me. So that was basically the method. 
Yeah. Well, it's interesting because it's, the, the method in some senses you know, brings up so many of the themes that come up in your book um, about sort of the economics of all of this, about the, the, you know, the, the gay parents' place in religious communities, um, about, about their ways of, of establishing networks. Um, so, so let's just jump right into it. Um, you start off with a discussion of, of gay men. You use the term intentional gay fathers. Um, and maybe you could talk a little bit about that term um, and, and, and how they become fathers. Well, you know, men uh, can't become parents by accident. Um, well, they can, obviously. But these men want to be primary parents. And they're, you know, um, uh, to do that, they have to put something in some kind of course of action um, into play that will allow them to be the primary parent of a child. So this is a different situation than women face who want to become parents because lesbians, for example, can find some way to become pregnant. And I think, you know, the, you know, you can imagine what all those are, everything from assisted reproduction to meeting somebody one night and having a, you know, a, a one night stand. I mean, there's a lot of ways to become pregnant. Um, but for gay men, obviously, they can't get pregnant. And um, so they have to um, use certain methods to move in this direction that involve quite a bit of planning um, and uh, strategizing and in some cases require a great deal of money. Um, so I, in, the, in the book, I talk about the various ways in which gay men can become fathers. Now, of course, probably the largest group of gay fathers in our general population are men who had children in marriages and subsequently identified as gay. And I, ha I have some of those guys in my study, but mostly I'm interested in the people who, as gay men, decide to become parents, which is mm -hmm. a different kind of sequence. Right, right. So um, um, that means there's a number of things you can do. The least expensive and the mo and probably the easiest in some ways um, is a domestic public adoption, which means going to uh, public agencies or private agencies that contract with public agencies with the foster care system and getting certified as a foster parent and then moving through the system to be placed, to have a child placed with you as a permanent placement for adoption. The thing that um, makes that accessible to a lot of people is that it basically doesn't cost anything because the foster care system is very eager to place these children. Um, and because there is such a, an overabundance of children in the system, apparently in any given year around 100,000 children in the U.S. available for adoption, um, you know, the agencies have, most agencies have stopped uh, ruling out gay people as potential placements. There are some states in which gay people cannot be, have children placed with them, but the places where I was working were not um, those particular locations. So, um, but the, you know, the issue here is that a lot of children end up in the foster care system because of abuse or neglect. They're not newborns and, uh, the, and they are disproportionately children of color, mixed race, or children with disabilities or both. Now, some people are very open to adopting children um, who have those characteristics. And, of course, not just gay men. There are all kinds of people who adopt, um, you know, children, um, children with, uh, with disabilities or children who are, you know, have serious 
uh, problems in their histories. But lots of people don't want to do that. And then the other thing is that most of the people wanting to adopt children are Caucasian. And then, again, many, many of the children are non-white. So this means that if people want to adopt this way, they have to make decisions about these particular issues. What I found in my study was that the fathers um, who were African-American excuse me, affirmatively chose to adopt this way because they felt it was something they had to do for their, own, for their community. Um, other fathers, some of them also affirmatively chose to adopt this way, but some people didn't want to do that. They wanted a child who um, might, would either look more like them and be more convincing as a, as a sort of as-if natural child, um, or they wanted um, a newborn infant. Now, uh, that meant that they were going to have to enter the system in some different ways. So the next option um, is uh, domestic uh, private adoption, which means that a potential um, family, either a parent or a couple, um, enter into a system. They deal with some sort of intermediaries, and they are matched with a pregnant woman who wants to give her child up, and then she gets to pick. Um, who the child will go to, or, you know, she, she may pick a family and then they, of course, uh, choose if they want to work with her or not. Uh, that can be a very insecure process because some women go all the way through the pregnancy and then change their minds and decide they want to keep their children. Um, so a lot of people are nervous about doing this, but uh, that does mean that, a, that one would end up with a newborn child um, and a child that you know, where you would have some control over the race and, you know, um, and presumably, you know, be a healthy newborn. Uh, the next option is uh, international adoption and, you know, and, and private adoption, you know, there are lawyers and other people that have to be paid. Some compensation goes to the woman for some of her costs during the pregnancy. Um, probably costs around $20,000. That may vary depending on, on you know, on where this is all taking place, how much distance is involved. This also means that sometimes the, the new parents can even be present at the birth. Um, it, I mean, that would have to be negotiated with the pregnant woman, but that's something that's very attractive uh, to people. Uh, the next option is international adoption, and that means um, for gay men, very, very few options because most countries have tried to figure out ways to to rule gay men out of their system and also lesbians. Um, so during the time when I did this study, everyone except one of the international adopters that I worked with had adopted from Guatemala. And there was one guy who had adopted from uh, Russia in, in, my, in my sample. But Guatemala seemed the most common. They seemed, uh, that it wasn't that they were open to having gay men, but they were open to having single men. And that was how uh, the men in my study had to present themselves. So if they were a couple, one of them would be the official father and the other one would be invisible for the proceedings. And that would mean they would get not a newborn, but a child who could be as young as maybe six or eight months old. Um, usually they were somewhat older than that. They were children who had been in pretty good foster care situations in Guatemala, so they seemingly were healthy. And, uh, you know, those were... And they were, you know, they were Guatemalan children. They were not African-American, um, which seemed to be the, the boundary that, a lot, you know, a lot of white people didn't want to cross. 
And then finally, there's surrogacy, which is sort of the Rolls Royce of this process. Um, it's very expensive to um, work with a surrogate, um, to, to have a child working with a surrogate. It can cost, assuming that you have to get donor eggs, um, and there's a lot of procedures involved in embryo transfers, and you have an egg donor, you have a surrogate, you have lawyers, you have travel expenses. Um, it typically costs around $100,000 or more uh, per, you know, per child. Um, so, the, you know, those were procedures that you had to be pretty well off to be able to afford because that's $100,000 before you've even started, you know, daycare or the college fund or anything else. So, you know, in that case, you you will then get a child who is genetically related to, um, you know, its father or one of its fathers. Um, and there's a lot of um, specifying and fine-tuning that people can do, although um, the possibility of getting multiples out of that process is is, is not small. I, I had, there was one guy in my study who had triplets, um, working, you know, doing surrogacy. Um, uh, but twins are not uncommon at all because they, they typically implant more than one embryo uh, when they do embryo transfer. Uh, and there have been instances where because of the possibility of multiples, there may be pregnancy complications, prema- prematurity, other kinds of problems. So, I, you know, I found a fair amount of that in the study, people who spent months in the NICU with a you know, with a compromised infant and so on. But a lot of these situations turned out, you know, quite happily for, for everybody. So it's interesting, you know, in, in the chapter in which you discuss all these things, um, you know, we really, we really uh, get a kind of a language of, of almost kind of consumerism. In a sense, men are making decisions partly on the basis of what they can afford, partly on the basis of what their desires are for what kind of baby. You know, in some ways, a kind of a, a consumer choice about how to go go about all of this. Um, you know, which of course is familiar to to anybody working working with adoption or infertility, right? Having to make these choices. But I thought one of the most interesting things about your discussion there is, you know, particularly given the context of gay fatherhood, either as a single gay man or as, or as part of a gay couple, how this connects to notions of of what is natural. Um, some of your your interviewees talk a lot about about such and such a connection feeling more natural, feeling more like nature. Um, and, and given the constellation, this was a very, a, a very important subject to them. Yes, very, very important. Well, the desire to reproduce and have children is deeply understood to be natural. And men have to fight a little bit to have it be seen as natural in them because, again, they're not, they're not mothers and fathers are not understood to be to have this, the, these urgent feelings, but um, they, uh, you know, I guess readers need to understand that, um, you know, nature is actually a very cultural concept. You know, what we designate as nature and what we uh, think of as natural um, is not just transparent and obvious. So um, uh, natural could be that a child, you know, that there's resemblance <clears throat> and there's, you know, a history of, uh, what another scholar has called resemblance talk in families where, you know, your family will talk a lot about, um, just looking for my water here, um, a family will talk about, you know, oh, you look just like aunt so-and-so, and it's a way of legitimating 
um, the linkages in the family. Um, and sometimes it could be that you, in fact, don't look that much like aunt so-and-so, but everybody would like to believe it. Um, so for some men, appearance was a very big deal, but not everybody. So, you know, I had fathers who said, who were doing surrogacy who said, I want my children to look in the mirror and then be able to look over, and they pointed to some family pictures that were on the wall and say, that's my great-grandmother and I look like her. And they wanted to be able to go out in public and be able to be legible as a family, which depended, in their imagination at least, on... Um, you know, on looking like each other to some mm-hmm. extent. Um, other people felt that resemblance was less important, partly because they understood that as men, nobody, you know, some of them felt that nobody would think that they were um, parents anyway. Um, you know, that two men, for instance, couldn't be the parents of a child, which meant that often when they traveled, they had to carry paperwork around with them so nobody would think that they'd kidnapped these, right. their child. But, you know, there was two fathers who adopted, who were caught, who were white, who adopted a child of um, through a private adoption of Filipino heritage, and I asked them about their racial preferences, and they said, "Well, we didn't have any because nobody was going to think it was our kid anyway. Mm-hmm. So why should we have, you know, racial, um, you know, preferences?" So they didn't. Um, other people, there was a different kind of. Um, there were different kinds of goals that loomed larger for them. For some people, the question or the possibility of rescuing a child from an extreme situation was bigger to them than whether this child looked like them. In other words, they had a moral imperative that they were responding to, um, to get a kid out of the foster care system, uh, to, you know, to make a stand against racism by adopting children of races other than their own. And this usually was African-American children who have the hardest time getting adopted, especially if they're no longer infants, and especially to adopt an African-American boy. A lot of pe- people, when they adopt, have a preference for girls. Um, I suspect, I never could get a, a clear answer on this, but my suspicion is that it's because girls are perceived to be less dangerous and threatening. And if you're adopting a child who's not related to you, there's already some anxiety about, you know, whether that child could eventually become a danger. So there's, um, there's a, an intense desire for girls in the adoption system. And that means the boys languish um, waiting for permanent homes. And of course, um, for most of these kids in the system, don't get them and simply age out of, foster care eventually. So, um, you know, some people wanted to make a moral stand against that kind of, uh, those kinds of preferences, and they did so. Um, But, you know, there were many people for whom, you know, they wanted to look like a family in public. They didn't want people to be questioning them. And you also had um, had cases where, again, this notion of, of of a natural connection was 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 biological. You know, especially in cases of surrogacy, where uh, where people would you know, where men would want to contribute their own sperm, or where both members of a couple would want to in order to create siblings that are yeah. You know, so 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 again, sort of biology re-entered into it um, in, in in such cases. Yes, definitely. If they could manipulate biology um, in these situations they wanted to do that but again in in our society where surrogacy is expensive you right. know it has to do with mm-hmm. how much you can spend 
Um, but other people, you know, the thing about adoption that's really interesting is that, and the adoption literature shows this, is that people develop an idea when they're adopting a child, even though they're adopting perhaps a child that to whom they have no genetic connection, maybe no right, racial connection. Once they commit to a particular child, that connection becomes naturalized and people use the language in adoption all the time of, you know, giving a certain date when their child came home. They always use the phrase came home as though the child had been traveling somewhere else and finally came home. Hmm. Um, So that's a kind of a naturalized connection. The notion that that child belonged with you and it was only because of some kind of circumstances that this child ended up being in China or, (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> in the foster care system or wherever the child belongs to you. And people will, in fact, uh, carry through with adoptions that they've committed to, even when they find out that maybe the child has a serious health problem. This may come up somewhere in the process, and they are so committed that they will go through with it. They don't change their minds. Um, so the guys that I interviewed also um, had this kind of discourse, and I guess one of the most moving episodes was a guy who adopted a child, and this was actually quite some time ago, and the child is now in his early 20s, or, you know, in his 20s, but he was a single man. He developed the notion that he should adopt a child, that this was something that he was called to do um, as a, you know, as a moral commitment. Um, He understood that as a gay man, he couldn't just adopt any kid because there were limitations, and he also... um, understood that, uh, you know, as a, as a single person, and he di- didn't have a particularly great job, that, that there were limits to what he could afford. So he um, went through the books. At that time, they were all in big volumes of kids who were available throughout the country. And again, the parallel to shopping, you know, can't be overlooked. It has, this has a lot of, um, this is reminiscent of catalog shopping. And he went through all these books and he found a child who was gravely disabled um, in another state, a child who I think he was about three at the time of the adoption, but he, um, he had had a, a stroke as a six-month-old infant and had been, you know, had been returned by his first adoptive placement because people couldn't deal with it. He was in some kind of custodial situation in a hospital and supposedly couldn't hear, couldn't speak, couldn't make eye contact, couldn't walk, you know, just, uh, you know, a total disaster. But he had spoken a little bit. And when he spoke, he said, what? Oh, he said, what's that? And no, those were his words. And this guy saw this story and he said, if that's what he's saying, there's a person in there trying to break out. And when he told me about it, he burst into tears. You know, this is like 18 years later, he burst into tears and said, I knew that was my child. And, you know, um, when I asked him how he knew, he said it's because he could, he could read through this and he could tell who, that someone was in there who, who had potential. He then went through, he, he manipulated the system. He went into offices where he sort of let people think he was a social worker so he could get through to look at certain materials. He contacted the people in the other state with some pretext for why they should introduce him. He went through all of this stuff, and he did adopt this child. Now, what was the story with this child? Well, first of all, he was not as catastrophically disabled as he'd been told, 
although he is very disabled, he remains very disabled, but he wasn't either blind or deaf. Um, and uh, he, he did learn to walk and he does make eye contact and he does speak. And he in fact has graduated from high school in some sort of um, program for disabled kids. And I think he now works in a, you know, in a, a, you know, a supervised workshop situation. So he certainly does have disabilities, but he did much better than had been predicted. And this man, for the duration of the time that he was raising this kid, he didn't have a partner. He didn't have a car. He never bought a house. He couldn't afford any of these things. He devoted his life to taking care of a child that nobody wanted. And, um, you know, some of these, these stories are very overwhelming when you read them. They are. And I mean, again, I think one of the things that's so interesting about, about your really quite broad sample is you have, you know, cases ranging from that sort of situation, a, um, a very hard up single person without a lot of financial resources taking on a, a child with a lot of challenges, um, to quite wealthy couples um, who are in a much more privileged position, clearly, right, to um, to obtain the child they want, a child who's considered more desirable. Um, and like you say, a lot of this, this sort of... Um, this whole range of adoption experiences is is familiar to people who have encountered the world of adoption or the adoption literature. Um, but, of course, these are men that, that do encounter um, unusual situations because they are gay men, you know, either singles or in couples, you know, p- partly having to do with having to overcome certain hurdles, you know, with, international adoptions with with countries that simply rule them out and that sort of thing. But you also have this this very interesting discussion about about such men's place in in the gay community. Uh, And your your introductory chapter um, sort of opens with a little anecdote uh, about, about someone hearing one of your research presentations and saying, why would you want to write about such yucky people? Um, and, and this was someone who was sort of coming from a queer perspective. Um, so why are, talk to us about, about men's play, gay men's, gay father's place in the kind of social and political spectrum and the culture wars. That turns out yeah. to be a pretty big theme. Well, the culture wars, I think, involving you know, queer studies as a field, you know, that's one area, you know, and the thing that I've encountered as a scholar. But I think these men encounter it in their lives as well. Uh, you know, one of the examples I think of is a sociologist whose book I've read who did a study of gay men who lived in the suburbs. And I think he did this in the New York suburbs. And he goes, he has this entire book and he never, and it was written, oh, in the less than 10 years ago. And he never mentions children or parents once. My suspicion is that when he saw some man walking with a child, he didn't think he was gay. Just ruled, you know, that that person was just invisible as gay because he was a parent. Um, So, you know, this was invisible to him. And, you know, um, the notion is that, you know, gay is something that's situated in a subversive urban space and it's you know everything you know it's it's uh you know everything about it is about rebelling against mainstream culture well you know gay people grow up in the same society as the rest of us and some of them um you know 
yearn to have families, want to have certain kinds of homes, want children, want, you know, are, are attached to mainstream cultural um, pursuits. Um, you know, all of that, um, you know, all of that exists for these people. They're not all out, um, you know, spending their time um, planning their next tattoo or, um, you know, doing something that is classified as resistant and subversive. Um, you know, obviously, it, by becoming parents, they're resisting some of the mandates that say that gay men can't be parents. Um, but um, often the way that they go about parenting is maybe based on the way their families undertook parenting. Many people, that's another thing that gets naturalized. People say, well, of course I wanted to have children. Children were so important in my family, and these were the values, and, and they see themselves as continuing values um, out of the situations they grew up in. Um, or, you know, they, they, for instance, may decide they don't want to live in an urban gay neighborhood anymore after they have children because there aren't very many children there and the local schools aren't very good. And they move to the suburbs for the same reason that other people with children may move to the suburbs. The schools are better. They want a backyard. They want an environment where there are lots of children. And, you know, that shouldn't really be surprising. But some queer scholars uh, find that annoying, especially when we're talking about uh, people who might be middle class. And that was the yucky in that instance was a very was a, a middle class couple who um, apparently this person didn't think they were outrageous enough for her taste. Uh, but they were, you know, they were real people. And... Um, and they had a real experience, and I was trying to describe what I thought that experience meant. Um, so I often, I, I some, you know, the study of lesbian and gay parenthood and family relationships and now the big debates about marriage, a lot of this has evolved into a discussion about, well, should gay people want to get married? They shouldn't want anything like that because that's middle class and heterosexual and this and that. And it's a very... Um, it's a very normative kind of discussion that that is not, first of all, it's not very empirical. It's not looking at what are people actually doing. It's talking about what they ought to do. And um, it's, a, it's a discussion that really um, peripheralizes these people's personal desires and what they really want out of life and what it means to them to be a whole person. Um, and I guess as an anthropologist, I'm not in business to tell people what they ought to do. I'm, you know, my job is to look at what people actually do and figure out what that means. Um, so I've gotten the same commentary um, about work I've done on same-sex commitment ceremonies and by extension on, on, uh, on marriage for, for same-sex couples. Um, you know, some people think gay couples shouldn't want that, but, you know, it's not a question of should, it's a, you know, it's a question of do for some people. So how do, you know, the, the, um, the gay men themselves that you write about um, confront this as well, like you say, in their own lives. This isn't just a matter of kind of scholarly or activist discourse. You've got, um, you know, men who, who describe themselves as kind of almost having left their gay life behind yeah. now that their parents. So they have this notion of what a gay life was and what they're doing now is somehow different. Yeah. So, I mean, on some level, they know their identities, you know, and there was the couple I interviewed who said, I asked them something about how having children and these guys had adopted 
uh, had adopted two children, and I asked them how having these young children had affected their lives as gay men, and they sort of giggled and said, well, you know, we're not gay anymore. We pick our friends by what time their children take naps. And, um, you know, that's a very telling thing. Of course, they know that they're gay men. I mean, they're still a gay couple. They were actually active in some gay dad organizations. So they were saying that, um, uh, you know, with a... Um, you know, you know, with some humor, but um, the fact is that it, this raises questions about wh- what is gay. Is gay an, an, an all-encompassing quote lifestyle? I always use that term "lifestyle" in quotes. Does it mean that you hang out with gay people? That you um, go to gay cultural events? That you go shopping a lot? That you do X, Y, and Z? Or is it simply about your affectional preferences? And you may be doing all kinds of other things. Um, so if you have small children, uh, a lot of your life is taken up with going to school events and, um, you know, doing all the things you have to do to be a parent, making sure you have a uh, childcare at certain times. Um, and it may mean that some activities that you participated in when you didn't have children are going to fall by the wayside. And, um, you know, there was a couple in my study who talked about that before they had a child. They used to go to the opera all the time. Now, going to the opera counted for them as a, as a quintessentially gay activity, although obviously a lot, a lot of people go to the opera who aren't gay, but it's seen as a gay men's um, uh, icon in a way. And uh, they said, well, now that we have our child, uh, it just doesn't seem as important. And anyway, it's expensive. You have to buy the tickets. You have to get the babysitter. You have to you know, park and go out to dinner and the whole thing. And then you get home and it's late and you're tired. And then your kid wakes up in the middle of the night and et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, they, they don't do that anymore. And that means that, you know, they are still gay, but they're gay in a different way. And some of the men I talked to had some very interesting discussions about how do you know you're gay? Is it because you talk a certain way or is it because you spend your time with, with, certain kinds of people in certain kinds of pursuits. Now, what also came out in these discussions was that for some men, gay, in quotes, was a devalued domain. And some men said things to me about, well, I don't want to go to all those parties or just think about my next, my next vacation in Key West. And, the, you know, and they talked in terms of you know, some rather chilling anti-gay stereotypes you know, that's all about shopping and vacations and going out to clubs and stuff. But they they had come to devalue that and to think that it was shallow. And what they were doing was part being part of the real world and taking care of a child and being part of a community and being a citizen and a contributor. And they saw that as morally superior. So they were, you know, there were moral foundations that came up in these discussions quite a bit. And it does, right, it does take us back to some of those, those sort of intertwined factors of, of senses of social obligation, um, which you discussed already, particularly in the case of adopting hard-to-place children, whether for racial reasons or reasons of disability or behavioral problems. Um, but we also get a sense of, of other realms of, of morality or of, of, of gay fathers' sense of the moral underpinnings of their actions, um, in some cases religious obligation, oh, yeah. Um, in other, in in some case, very interesting cases, a 
a, a, almost a kind of a feminized discussion, a kind of a, a linking themselves to motherhood, which is understood to be laden with moral value. Yeah. So, so what's, you know, of course you, 20 years ago, you wrote a book about lesbian mothers. Um, what's, what's the role of gender in all of this? Well, I th- you know, the thing is that taking care of children, we could argue, is, quote, mothering. And men can do it, too. You know, men can be the ones who get up in the middle of the night and change diapers and take, you know, and do all the intense and embodied things that are involved in motherhood. Um, Now, I asked men if they thought that they were mothers, and except with one exception, they all said no, because they thought of the label mother as being connected to being female, and they felt, you know, unequivocal that they were male. Um, so that meant they couldn't be mothers, but they did mother kinds of things. And if we think of gender as a, as, um, as a collection of actions um, in the world, as something that you do rather than something you are, then these men are mothers, you know, in, a, in an active kind of way. And certainly the experiences of tenderness, of forgetting their own needs because the child's needs are so paramount. There was one guy in, in the study who, who compared it to a previous experience he had before he had a child where he, he had a partner who had AIDS who died and he took care of him, you know, day and night. And he talked about sort of, you know, disappearing out of his own body that he became, you know, because he was so focused on the care of this person which he clearly saw as a kind of a, a morally rich experience. But he took care of this person so much that he sort of forgot he was there. Mm. And he said that taking care of his baby was like that, mm. that he wasn't aware of his own aches and pains when he was taking care of the baby. The baby was just came first. And that that was, you know, an intense kind of moral transcendence, if you will. Uh, there were other people, and I found this very explicit, for instance, among my African-American uh, dads who talked about being a parent as a kind of service, as something that they do because of their commitment to God and their commitment you know, to family and, and to, um, to doing something for their communities, and that they felt called to do it by God. And, um, you know, they, and they were very comfortable with that kind of language. They were, they were, you know, putting it in a, in these kinds of religious terms. Um, you know, not everybody used explicitly religious terms, but I think for, um, a lot of the fathers, you know, they made sacrifices to do this in terms of other parts of their lives in terms of, you know, even the wealthy fathers had to curtail something (laughs) usually. And, you know, they were aware that their lives were different um, some of the wealth, one of the wealthy couples who said their friends call up and say, Hey, you want to go to the movies? And they said, we can't just go to the movies on the, at the drop of a hat. You know, we have to arrange a babysitter and we have to do this and we have to do that. And, you know, they said some of their friends were annoyed by this. Um, in other words, people, so it was in, in some ways there were similarities to the lesbian mothers and that fathers found that people who didn't have children didn't understand what their issues were. And found it kind of annoying that they couldn't just, you know, go to the movies, you know, um, w- without making, you know, advance arrangements or, um, you know, that these children were permanent and, you know, came first. 
So when you, you know, when you think back about your work on lesbian mothers, um, you know, the book that came out, I think in 1993, is that yes, right? that's right. Yeah, yeah. It's a, you know, a book that, that I read when I had a one-year-old in a lesbian relationship. I was very excited to see it on the bookshelves. Um, so, so, you know, in a sense, you have two variables here, right? You've got a book about lesbian mothers and a book about gay fathers, but also you have two books that are separated in time by almost 20 years. Yes. Um, how does that matter? Well, it matters because the phenomenon of, of lesbian and gay parenthood is more visible now. When I said I was working on gay fathers, people didn't tell me the facts of life. I mean, they seemed to understand that, that these guys existed. You know, they're not as visible as I think they ought to be, and they don't get some of the credit that I think they should get. But certainly the situation has changed because we've had a 20-year period, roughly, um, in which, um, you know, um, Gay and lesbian people have been demanding certain kinds of uh, legibility and certain kinds of entitlements. They, they're, you know, there's been a, there's a struggle ongoing about same-sex marriage. There's a struggle for domestic partner benefits. There's, um, you know, there are visible kinds of struggles over a lot of the, these kinds of issues. And um, probably 20 years ago, none of these gay men could have adopted through the foster care system. Well, in fact, I, I interviewed a couple who. It, who adopted in the 80s, and when they went to public agencies in the beginning, they were just told, what are you kidding? You're gay men. There are deserving parents out there. We're not going to give a kid to you. And that was the term they used, there are deserving parents yeah, out you know, there. What makes yeah. you, oh, you know, yeah. and they, were, they were so offended that they would ask, well, these days they would be thrilled if they would come in because they have, they have big caseloads and they want to settle these children with nice families. And these days these men would be seen as nice families. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you get investigated a lot when you adopt, but these, you know, these are guys with jobs and steady relationships and they're responsible and they meet all the criteria uh, for be- for being suitable parents. Uh, but, you know, as you know, uh, 25 years ago, they would have been ruled out or 20 years ago, probably. So, I mean, things, um, you know, things have changed and. Um, and, you know, although they're less, you know, one guy said to me, if you want to be invisible, walk down Castro Street with a stroller. <laughs> and, you know, that's still somewhat true. But actually, you know, gay men with children have become more visible, as have lesbian mothers. And I think there's more acceptance. Not everybody accepts them. Some people think it's, it's all very annoying that gay people are having children. And this is, I mean, other gay people feel this way. But... Um, you know, their visibility is, is considerably enhanced and so is their legitimacy. So it's, you know, it's, some, it's in some ways um, a different kind of world. Um, people feel they have the right to act on their affectional preferences in a way that doesn't rule every single element of their lives. You know, it doesn't mean you have to do, you know, do a whole laundry list of things to, you know, to still be in, you know, be able to claim this identity that you have more, you know, personal freedom. So I think that's, um, you know, th- those are important changes. And um, certainly, you know, there are, there is now available to people in most, in many states, not all states, the possibility of doing a second parent adoption. So if one, one, either father or mother is the primary legal parent, the second um, same-sex parent can be can gain recognition as a parent. So, in other words, a child can have two mothers or two fathers, not just in, in practice but legally. Um, you know, and that's that's you know terribly important. At the same time, as you know, there are terrible abuses 
um, in some states, and there are not sufficient legal protections. So there are situations, you know, where children can't get benefits from the parent that the government doesn't think is their legal parent, or, you know, other kinds of, um, you know, um, other kinds of lack of recognition, which have real um, material impacts on people's lives. And I should say, and I, you know, um, the, the most, most gay and lesbian people who have children are not high-income people. And these kinds of uh, households are more common among low-income people. They're more, they're more common among people of color. They're, very com- they're more common in the South. And they're common among people who are religiously observant. So these are not elite families for the most, you know, in the big picture. Um, they are ordinary folks who really need legal protections because they don't have um, income, you know, su- sufficient income to bypass all those legal benefits. You know, mm-hmm. for instance, Social Security or other things that same-sex couples still are left out of. So a lot of what you're talking about really is, you know, is legal frameworks, um, you know, as well as cultural change. Um, but, you know, you, you use the word, you talk in the, in the subtitle, Narratives of Family and Citizenship in America. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you see this as being a story of citizenship. Well, I think people, you know, in, in the United States, family and citizenship are at the bedrock. I, I, I mean, family is at the bedrock of citizenship. That's what I wanted to say. In other words... It's assumed that having a family, also being married and or having children makes you a contributor to the culture, makes you part of the citizenry, uh, gives you the foundation on which to make claims uh, for particular kinds of uh, accommodations for uh, rights as well as obligations. So um, I think that a lot of the stories that these men tell, and again, the focus here is on narratives. I'm talking very much about what people say about who they are and what they do and how they, um, how they uh, frame these experiences in a narrative, you know, how this turns into talk, um, which is, you know, the way I'm looking at culture here, that culture reveals itself in narrative. Um, but they clearly they have a stake in the society that's a different kind of stake when they have children and they're they're creating a new generation and they also feel that that you know that that's a long-term contribution that's important you know they're doing something that has implications for the whole society you know this is no longer just private this is about producing the next generation of of Americans and that's part of being a citizen um, so, you know, I think, you know, that it gives them a certain kind of solidity. It gives them something in common with their fellow citizens who may not be gay or lesbian. Um, it gives them a stake in, in, in what happens that's different from the stake you have when you are um, a person without, without children. So like you say, there's a, a, a great concern in your work with how they understand themselves, how they, oh, yeah. how they tell their stories, how they frame their experiences. And um, so in a sense, their own understanding of themselves as, 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 as citizens, as, as contributing to the polity, as, as, as being able to claim certain rights um, is a big, you know, their, their, their sense of meaning. That's right. Uh, 
in in their task you know, as fathers. I don't go and sit in their houses and watch what they do. So they tell me stuff, and it doesn't. It may not all be a hundred percent accurate. It might not be the same thing I would see if I was running a video camera in their house. In this case, that isn't important because I'm interested in what they make of their situations, whether their situations are anomalous or whether that you know they see their situations as you know, relatively mainstream or how they make sense of the difference between those. And the sense in which they see them, their citizenship is important is both material and moral. In other words, they see themselves as contributing members to the culture. And also, you know, there are material dimensions to that. There are costs and there are potentially benefits, um, you know, in the form of, you know, benefits you may get from your job or the, or the government, or, you know, or what have you. Um, you know, it ha- you know th- there's an impact. Being seen as a citizen has an impact on, you know, how you live your life, um, again, in both moral and material ways. Um, so, uh, and this is especially important. The material things are especially important for, for lower-income um, gay parents. Um, you know, you know, if you have a higher income, you can go to a lawyer and draw various kinds of agreements to make sure, um, you know, that your will is valid and this, that, and the other thing, and that your, you know, your, um, retirement goes to your partner and so on. But you can't do that with social security under the current system with the defense of marriage act. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, if one parent dies and that's the person who's rec- legally recognized who's not legally recognized as the parent but may be the main breadwinner in that household that those children and that spouse do not get that person's social security and they right. get the survivor benefits and they're basically screwed you know and yeah, yeah. <laughs> right so to this, put it this. to put it simply <laughs> This is, this is the technical anthropological term yes, for, yes, for the situation yeah. we find ourselves in. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, this is, I mean, it's fascinating work um, about, um, about gay fathers' self-perception, about the, uh, the economic challenges they face, about the, the, their, their legal, um, the legal hurdles they face, about their sense of community, uh, about, about their sense of gayness and how that's affected by the role of parenting. It's, it's very, very interesting work. Um, let me let me just end by asking you our, our traditional last question in the New Books Network, which is maybe to tell us a little bit about what you're working on now. Okay, well, I've become interested, and this was through the Gay Fathers Study because someone I met there sort of pulled me into this. I've become interested in um, religion as another area that supposedly gay people don't engage in. Mm-hmm. Because traditional churches and you know traditional religious institutions um, uh, peripheralize them, and um, one of the dads that I met in the course of this study, who was a you know who who was a black man, and at that time was um, a divinity student in Chicago, said to me, "Oh, you should come to my church. I, I have this church, you know, and this is where it meets, and this is the time, and you ought to come." And um, you know, I, I eventually did go, mostly just to be nice, and I found a really fascinating community, which um, kind of embraced me in an, in an amazingly um, instantaneous way. Uh, it wasn't something I ever had any previous experience with, um, and it led me into then, th- you know, through various contacts and people I met in his church, um, 
an involvement with a group which is called the Fellowship, which is a coalition of churches. It's a national coalition. Uh, they have about 120 member congregations. It's based in San Francisco, and it is a predominantly African-American, predominantly LGBT, and, um, and completely Pentecostal group. They, Very interesting. Yeah. It does not consider itself a denomination. It considers itself mm-hmm. a coalition of churches. Um, so I have been for about the past three years going to events, um, either going to church services, going to their national meetings and regional meetings, and um, doing interviews with people who are members of constituent churches, both leadership and ordinary um, uh, people who are members of congregations. And I'm looking basic, most centrally at the way, um, the way prayer um, shapes uh, their experience of everything else that they do. And um, it's, it's, it's a big departure for me from what I used to do in some ways, but I'm still looking at a situation where everyone assumes that these people don't exist, uh, particularly because they are Bible-believing Bible Christians uh, who there's a, a widespread assumption that they must be all, you know, right wing, uh, which they are not. They're actually politically very progressive and that they must be anti-gay, which, of course, they're not because they're trying to create a, um, uh, a welcoming environment for gay people who have been estranged from the religions, the churches they grew up in. And this is especially meaningful for African-Americans because the church is a very powerful institution in the lives of African-Americans. It's a multivalent institution that has many functions besides just religious. And to be banished from your church because you're gay or transgender or whatever it happens to be is, is very, very painful and uh, really it's an excruciating fate. And, um, you know, data show that African-Americans overall in our culture um, are more religiously committed um, than any other group, in, you know, in terms of religious participation and believing in God and so on. So this is really, really um, important for them to have a place where they can engage in a kind of worship that's meaningful to them in a place that not only accepts them, but embraces them. And so that's what I've been doing. That's absolutely fascinating. I look forward to reading that book. I look forward um, to writing it. <laughs> yeah, I, I bet you do. It, it's, it's, a, it's a terrific sort of oeuvre overall, the Lesbian Mother's Book, Commitment Ceremonies, Gay Fatherhood, and now Religious Communities. Um, it's, it's just a, a, a really interesting body of work. Um, I want to thank you for, for being on our podcast today. It's been fascinating to talk to you. Well, thank you. Thank you. I always like to talk about this. So Okay. Well, nice great. Look forward to your next work, Ellen. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. I'm Lisa Heineman, and we've had with us today Ellen Lewin talking about her new award-winning book, A Fatherhood, Narratives of Family and Citizenship in America, a 2009 release from the University of Chicago Press. Thanks for listening, and please join us next time.